This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, May 20th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The Dodd-Frank financial reform was comparable in scale and scope to the New Deal. It also shares in the assumption that financial crisis is often caused primarily by market participants. Paul Mahoney is the dean of the Virginia School of Law. In his new book, Wasting a Crisis, Mahoney outlines how many government actors deflect blame for fomenting crisis. He discussed the book at the Cato Institute last week. So most major securities reforms in the United States and indeed elsewhere share two important characteristics. They're typically adopted in the aftermath of a stock market crash. And they're also publicly justified by what I, in in, uh, the book, call a market failure narrative, which contains three key claims. First, that misbehavior by uh, securities issuers, traders, or financial intermediaries caused the crash. Second, that a lack of regulation permitted the misbehavior. And third, that the reforms will prevent a repetition of the problem. The key claims in my book are that these narratives are usually wrong, and the resulting reforms typically curtail competition within the most directly affected segments of the regulated industry, with modest offsetting benefits to investors. Accordingly, Congress and regulators in the future should avoid the temptation to overhaul financial regulation in the immediate aftermath of a crisis. I try to illustrate these points with multiple examples, starting with the first significant securities regulatory statute in England uh, enacted in 1697 after the 1696 run on the Bank of England and ending with Dodd-Frank. But most of my examples uh, are drawn from the New Deal securities reforms, and I'm going to uh, ask your indulgence as I talk about a few of those today. And I chose these largely because they are widely seen as canonical examples of good regulation. Generations of law, business, economics, history, and political science students have learned that the New Deal reforms Uh, saved capitalism from itself by introducing greater transparency and fairness into previously anarchic securities markets. As I argue at length in the book, and will try to show briefly today, this lesson is largely wrong. Lax regulation was not a significant cause of the 1929 market crash or the Great Depression. The reforms themselves were at best a mixed blessing for investors. They included a few useful improvements to existing legal rules, but these were accompanied by more radical changes that harmed investors by reducing competition among investment banks, securities exchanges, and investment managers. The market failure narrative of the New Deal securities reforms includes two fundamental claims, one about disclosure and one about market manipulation. As a former SEC chair once put it, Uh, Investors supposedly bought new issues without seeing a prospectus and traded on the secondary markets without the benefit of ongoing disclosures. The Securities Act of 1933, the first of the New Deal reforms, introduced the notion of full disclosure to the securities markets. This is simply incorrect. Indeed, the irony of the disclosure provisions of the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934 is that they largely duplicated existing disclosure practices for New York Stock Exchange companies, a point to which I'll return momentarily. The Securities Act brought about very little change in pre-existing disclosure practices. 
In fact, if a Martian uh, were to come here and read the Securities Act as enacted, uh, he would quickly and correctly conclude that it is a secrecy statute. It suppressed information about the company and the offering, except during specified windows and through specified media. The gun-jumping provision and the requirement for a waiting period, generally seen by securities lawyers as, uh, as just uh, parts of the technical details, uh, are both anti-disclosure. So why are they there? The solution to the puzzle is to understand how much investment banking practices changed during the 1920s. In prior practice, underwriting was divided into a distinct wholesale and then a retail phase. The leading investment banks, uh, organizations such as J.P. Morgan & Co. and Kuhn Loeb & Co., were exclusively wholesalers. They, brought, they bought newly issued securities from companies and distributed them through retail broker-dealers. And the managing underwriter exercised tight control to prevent competition among these retail broker-dealers, restricting where, to whom, and at what prices they could sell. The underwriting process was slow, deliberate, and tightly controlled by the managing underwriter. During the 1920s, new entrants such as the National City Company competed for business by offering more rapid distribution. They encouraged broker-dealers to fight for business by discounting prices and poaching other brokers' customers. They also created their own retail distribution networks to help them sell even more rapidly. The result was dramatic. The new entrants took business away from the leading wholesale houses, and by 1928, they dominated the underwriting business at the expense of the traditional uh, leading firms. The Securities Act reversed this upheaval by slowing down the offering process and reestablishing the managing underwriter's firm control over it. The ban on sales prior to effectiveness of a registration statement ensured that brokers could not take orders until the managing underwriter gave them the okay. The gun-jumping provision assured that retail broker-dealers were as much in the dark as their customers until the managing underwriter was ready for them to begin the selling effort. The separation between the wholesale and retail phases of an offering, which had largely disappeared in the 1920s, became a statutory mandate. The statute accordingly revived the fortunes of the old investment banking aristocracy who promptly regained their old positions on the top of the league tables uh, and drove many less established firms out of the market. By my calculation, the Securities Act increased concentration in the underwriting business, defined as the aggregate market share of the top five underwriters, uh, by 12%, controlling for the differing market conditions before, during, and after the Depression. Now let me turn to market manipulation. Although modern securities lawyers tend to emphasize the periodic disclosure system for publicly traded companies as the heart of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, President Roosevelt and his congressional allies saw the statute as a means to end market manipulation. A key conclusion from the Pecora hearings, which lasted for over two years and generated a great deal of publicity, was that manipulation was rampant on the New York Stock Exchange. The evidence of manipulation was the existence of so-called stock pools, 
These were temporary joint ventures among two or more financial intermediaries or investors to trade in a particular stock. Congress concluded that the pools were today what we would call pump and dump schemes uh, that bought heavily in order to create price momentum and attract unsophisticated investors, whereupon the pool would sell out and the price would collapse. And if this all sounds like ancient history, by the way, um, it's quite frequent for modern commentators to refer to these stock pools when talking about current uh, regulations uh, regarding market manipulation. Why did PCORA, the Senate Banking Committee's counsel, and the senators on the committee conclude that pools were engaged in manipulation? Largely because they found that the stocks in which the pools traded often increased in price. And of course, when the market crashed, they all fell in price along with uh, all the rest of the uh, stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. But no one ever asked the essential question, how did the pool stocks perform relative to the rest of the market. Uh, and as far as I can tell, I am the first person to examine that question. Uh, and the answer is interesting. The pool stocks outperformed the market over both the short and the long run. In other words, there was no pump and dump cycle. All the evidence points to the conclusion that pool operators did exactly what they said they were doing, which was finding undervalued stocks and buying them. Take my favorite example, Radio Corporation of America, which was purchased by several pool operators. Later writers, drawing on the Senate's investigation, called these purchases spectacular manipulations. And indeed, uh, from the end of 1926 to the spring of 1929, RCA's stock more than quadrupled in price. Yet, as the Senate's report takes pains to point out, RCA did not pay a single dividend during that period, nor did it acquire any new uh, physical uh, uh, assets or uh, real estate. In the Senate's view, only manipulation could account for this dramatic price rise. So did anything happen at RCA during 1927 and 1928 that might offer uh, uh, a, uh, uh, an alternative explanation? Well. It created a new national broadcasting network called NBC and began to deliver original content to millions of homes, generating advertising revenue and boosting sales of its radio sets. It acquired movie production and distribution businesses and began making talking motion pictures through its newly RKO Studios uh, subsidiary, which would go on to produce many of the iconic films of the 1930s. It experimented with an exciting new technology that could send pictures by wireless transmission, setting the stage for the development of television during the next decade. RCA had as good a run in 1927 and 1928 as any technology company has ever had. But this was all invisible to, the, to PCORA and the Senate because they believed that only physical properties were sources of value. So Congress's claim that the lack of regulation led to rampant market manipulation turns out to be demonstrably false. It also claimed that a lack of disclosure regulation meant that exchange-traded companies disclosed inadequate information, and what they dis did disclose was often misleading. This is a more diffuse claim, uh, but, but it is uh, susceptible to indirect testing. Here's the idea. Imagine that company A 
has very good disclosure practices. This means that traders will be well-informed and that dispersion in their estimates of the company's value will be low. Company B, by contrast, has poor disclosure practices. Traders will not be as well-informed about it, and so they will vary more widely in their estimates of the company's value. Now imagine that the market learns new information directly relevant to the value of each of the two companies. We would expect traders to react more to the news about company B than about company A because there was less previously known about company B. To state it more precisely, if the same amount of information is released about each company, we would expect there to be more post-release trading in company B's stock and for there to be a larger post-release price movement in company B's stock. We can use this insight to ask whether company disclosure practices improved after enactment of the Securities Exchange Act. Companies traded on the New York Stock Exchange became subject to the Exchange Act's periodic disclosure system in mid-1935. So we can compare the market's reaction to earnings releases in early 1935, releases that came before the implementation of the Exchange Act, to earnings releases by the same companies in early 1936, which came after implementation of the Exchange Act. Earnings releases, by the way, were common then as they are today. They're press releases in which the company gives basic information about net earnings and earnings per share. The hypothesis then is that prior to the 1935 announcements, traders were in the dark because there was no Exchange Act periodic disclosure system, but by the time of the 1936 announcements, traders were well informed because of the implementation of that system. If that hypothesis is correct, we should observe larger price and volume um, reactions to 1935 earnings announcements than the 36 announcements. But in fact, both the price and the volume reactions are strikingly similar uh, in both years, suggesting that the background information available about companies did not improve after enactment of the Exchange Act. So I would interpret the disclosure provisions of the Exchange Act quite differently from the way that they are typically described. I believe they were a best practices mandate that forced the smaller regional exchanges to bring their disclosure practices up to the standards of the New York Stock Exchange. This, of course, they could not do. It was not cost-effective for these small exchanges trading in the shares of small companies to invest in as much self-regulatory infrastructure as the New York Stock Exchange. And so the result was entirely predictable. At the time of the enactment of the Exchange Act, there were 41 stock exchanges in the United States. None of them had shut down during the Great Depression. But within two years after enactment of the Exchange Act, a quarter of them had disappeared. Once again, regulation adopted in the immediate aftermath of a financial crisis drove small firms out of the market, increased industry concentration, and gave investors fewer choices. Well, let's leave the New Deal and turn to more recent stock market downturns and their associated regulatory reforms. Today's reformers have a much harder job to do than the New Dealers because it is no longer very easy to say that U.S. financial markets are lightly regulated. 
But as we will see, regulatory proponents are remarkably good at finding remote corners into which the regulatory light has not yet penetrated and declaring that the causes of stock market crashes can be found there. Following the dot-com crash of 2001-2002 and the Enron bankruptcy, Congress enacted the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. The market failure narrative declared that the paucity of federal regulation of auditing practices and corporate governance facilitated Enron's collapse. But it can't both be true that bad corporate governance caused Enron's failure and that the Sarbanes-Oxley Act is a recipe for, presenting, uh, for preventing future Enrons. Sarbanes-Oxley's corporate governance provisions codify a laundry list of what were, in 2002, considered corporate best practices, of which Enron itself was a faithful follower. That brings us to Dodd-Frank. Here again, proponents were faced with the extreme challenge of arguing that the failure of commercial and investment banks, which are among the most heavily regulated entities on the planet, was a consequence of lax regulation. They met the challenge by arguing that the crisis was caused by limited federal oversight of the over-the-counter derivatives market and the shadow banking system. The proponents, by and large, ignored the potential contributions of government policies to the subprime crisis. From 2002 to 2006, the federal funds rate was lower than it would have been had the Fed followed the Taylor rule. Federal housing prices encouraged mortgage originators to extend credit to households that would not have obtained credit under more traditional underwriting standards. To my mind, however, the biggest policy failure was that regulators and economic policymakers failed to see an enormous concentration of risk in the too-big-to-fail banks. Many commentators have noted the moral hazard created by an implicit government guarantee of the solvency of the too-big-to-fail banks. But the way in which that guarantee interacted with financial engineering in the form of securitization derivatives transactions uh, has perhaps not gotten sufficient attention. In theory, any financial innovation that reduces the cost of transferring risk should move risks to those parties best able to bear them, leading to a dispersion of risk within the financial markets and the economy. But unfortunately, this is not true when there are institutions that are known to be backed by an implicit government guarantee. Apart from regulation, what limits risk-taking by financial firms? Well, it is well understood that diversified shareholders may be willing to take extreme risks in return for the possibility of extreme rewards. But creditors see the world differently. They don't share in the upside. And so creditors have a, a, a real incentive to stop firms from taking on excessive risk. And short-term creditors have a, an important tool at their disposal to do that. They can simply refuse to roll over their credits uh, as they mature. But this mechanism uh, operates less powerfully, if at all, in a too-big-to-fail bank. If a catastrophic loss on investments wipes out the value of its assets, the creditors are protected by the implicit government guarantee. So the too-big-to-fail banks will take on risks that smaller banks would avoid. At first approximation, this is what happened in the run-up to the subprime crisis. Too-big-to-fail financial institutions were willing to hold large and highly leveraged positions in mortgage-related assets. So I would argue that the market failure narrative has it backwards. 
Securitization, derivatives, and shadow banks did not create excessive risk. Instead, they allowed too-big-to-fail banks to take maximum advantage of their implicit government guarantee. The guarantee, not the financial innovation, was the root of the problem. Uh, but as is always true, the regulatory response gives certain financial firms a way to raise their rivals' costs. In the case of Dodd-Frank, banking regulators gained the authority to bring the shadow banks, which is to say all financial firms that are not already, already regulated as banks, under the supervision of bank regulators, who seem inclined to use that authority. A possible and dangerous outcome would be that institutions that serve different purposes than banks and that have different liquidity needs than banks, such as insurance companies and asset managers, will be regulated as if they are banks. Uh, and unfortunately, if subjected to bank-like regulation in order to economize on regulatory costs, uh, they may uh, be acquired by bank holding companies. As we know, during the financial crisis, we took a step in the direction of European-style universal banking as the largest investment banks converted to bank holding companies and are now regulated as such. If regulation of insurance, asset management, and other forms of financial intermediation raises their costs to the point where they cannot operate um, on a standalone basis, they will also migrate under the bank holding company umbrella. Once again, we see that what is from the public's perspective an unintended consequence of regulation is from the perspective of the leading firms in the regulated industry, a hoped-for consequence. Paul Mahoney is author of Wasting a Crisis. You can watch the full book event at our website, cato.org.